0: Yeah, just um, with the, um, the food, actually, uh, it's uh, it's been helpful in a whole variety of ways. So, for instance, when we we're uh, five or so of us were setting up the lights, permanently installing the lights, um, including Jared from, uh, who used to go to my old church, actually, um, yeah, we uh, just pulled out one of those casseroles, popped it in the oven, heated it up, and that was our meal for the evening, because it did take a few hours to, to get them sorted. Friends, it's great you can be here today. Welcome to the second in the series titled Spring into Action, based in Philemon 1 6. Be active in sharing your faith. And over the spring, we're going to be having a look at a whole variety of approaches to sharing the gospel. And uh, today we're going to look at the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Peter and his approach. And I've called the message. Um, From him, really, the example from him. Preach up a storm! Preach up a storm! Because we do see here Peter, indeed, preaching up a storm with a fantastic evangelistic response, with about three thousand giving their lives to Jesus that day. And Peter, to me, that this particular message, where we look at his classic evangelical approach, in, in some ways, we're seeing something that I think has influenced the great evangelists of the years. For instance, the 1700s, I've read some of George Whitfield's sermons. He was the great evangelist of of that era. And I can see the influence of Peter's sermon here on George Uh, or Charles Spurgeon of the 1800s and some of his evangelistic addresses. I can see the influence of Peter on him or Billy Graham of last century. I've listened to a lot of Billy's sermons and some of them you can see Peter's influence on his approach. Uh, And by the way, too, just a reminder for those um, who weren't here necessarily last week as we commenced the series, this book that I've written to directly accompany the series will be helpful in your personal quiet times and or if you're in a small group environment. So these are readily available. They're free of charge on the information table at the back of this auditorium. Let me give you a little bit of context before Peter got up and shared the word of God. Acts 2, 7 and 8. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Um, You've got the context. Remember the day? It's Pentecost. People have come from all over the world, Jewish folk from all over the world, many different nationalities, uh, many different languages being represented, and there is a supernatural moment where God, by his spirit, descends upon this massive crowd of people and suddenly we have these Galileans proclaiming the word of God in previously unlearned languages. And so you've got this Egyptian guy thinking, my goodness, that Galilean fisherman, he's speaking perfect Egyptian. You've got this Spanish guy saying, oh my goodness, I don't believe that this this Galilean speaking such perfect Spanish. And and there's a phenomena going on. The wonders of God are being proclaimed and the people are amazed at what they're seeing. It's in this context that's, Peter stands up to preach. Let me read a couple of verses just leading into his sermon. 2 verse 12, amazed and perplexed from the book of Acts, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've just had too much wine. So now Peter stands up and starts to communicate. And I want to learn a few principles about how he went about sharing the gospel. So we pick it up at verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, the other apostles, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. There's a couple of things he does here right at the beginning. First of all, he says, fellow Jews. There's Jewish people have come to celebrate Pentecost from all over the world. So he's, he's saying, fellow Jews, you know, I'm one of you. And then, of course, all of the locals, all of you who live in Jerusalem. So he's identifying himself with them. And then secondly, he cracks a joke. And uh, I, I notice in the, in the movie, I've seen a couple of different movies where they present this, one secular, one Christian, and both of them, when Peter gives that opening phrase, the crowd laugh. And I think it's very much in keeping with what actually happened. You see, we don't perhaps pick up the humour quite in the NIV here. But it's kind of, he says something like this, wouldn't put it past a lot of these blokes to get drunk, but they haven't had time, it's too early, and the crowd laughs. And so I want to suggest here that um, Peter, number one, I learned from his evangelistic approach, number one, identify with the people. Identify with the people. You could say connect with the people. You know, for me, my background isn't that of growing up in the church, and you've heard me share this publicly, but I often do it when I'm with an individual as well, just chatting. Uh, Because if they say, oh, look, yeah, I don't believe in God, I'm an atheist. And I said, well, I used to be too. You know, that's not my background. I I didn't do the church thing and I was an atheist for many years. And um, and they say, oh, well, you know, anyway, I, I just don't believe in God. And I said, well, what sort of God don't you believe in? Here's a bit of humor coming out. What sort of God don't you believe in? And I'll have this atheist describe the God they don't believe in. And I say this, I don't believe in him either. That's very different to the God I believe in. <laughs> and on we go. You, know, you can use a bit of humour in the approach and you can try and connect. And often too when um, they say, yeah, well, look, I'm just not religious. And I'll even agree with that and say, well, I'm not religious either. What do you mean you're not religious? Well, I, I know it's not about religious ritual. It's about a relationship, about a relationship with God. And that principle I see here in Peter of just trying to connect with the people I think is very important in the journey of any sharing of the gospel. Let's go on, Acts 2.16 and 7, and then I'll jump to 21. Just have a look at what Peter does here. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter here, and you read his whole address, you'll notice he quotes a whole whole bunch of Scripture, a whole bunch of the, the Old Testament Scriptures. And what I'm suggesting here is, number two, use the Word of God. Number two, use the Word of God. Any person gifted in evangelism will know the power of God's Word. And you see it with the likes of some of those great evangelists I mentioned, whether Whitfield or Spurgeon or Billy Graham, they know the power of God's Word. And so sharing the Scriptures is is such a powerful thing. And I would always suggest to people, have some Scriptures um, that you know, that you've learnt, that are in your mind. Uh, he, some of the don't worry about um, just on the switch. Don't worry about putting this cluster of scriptures up just yet, because I'll I'll put them up at the end of this. But let me say about each one. So I can go up on PowerPoint though. Um, Genesis one one, for instance, easy to remember. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I'll often quote that, just talking about hey, this this universe is so extraordinary in how it's all put together. There must be an intelligence behind the design of this universe, and there's a lot of mathematicians and scientists who don't believe in God who do agree. It seems hard to accept that this all happened by chance. Another scripture I often use is First uh, John 4, 8, which simply says God is love. That's easy to remember, isn't it? God is love. and Because we need to let people know that actually God loves them. He cares about them. I know many people, in fact, Charles Spurgeon, when he was 15 years of age, despite growing up in a Christian family, he said he would go to church and he never enjoyed it. He said, other people seemed to find the grace of God. All I got was the whip and the judgment of God. And so, you know, but he, of course, ultimately came to faith. But many people think God's all, he's a tyrant. He doesn't care about you. He's just got rules and he's strict. And, and of course, we know as Christians actually know, he does love people. Uh, Another scripture I regularly use is Romans 3.23. Um, Because there is a gap, there is a problem. All have sinned and fall short of of God's glorious standard. And so I regularly share Romans 3.23. It's just a short verse, easy to remember. And so I will actually quote it though, you know, because I think there's authority in God's word. But I will add there's consequences because of the shortcomings in our life. The wages of sin is death. But the gift from God is eternal life. And so another scripture I will regularly use, or... John 3.16, you know that one already. don't have to memorize that one. You've got it. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And, of course, John records Jesus sharing that with a religious man who, although he was very religious, very knowledgeable of the Old Testament, nevertheless, he needed to know that truth. And another one that's the very first verse I ever memorized. It was a part of a discipleship course as a new believer. It was Romans ten nine. This was week one. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. You will be saved. I've used that on many occasions because we need to make, make a response. We don't have to know these truths. We need to believe this stuff in our heart. We need to actually speak it out with our mouth. And some people with that eternal life thing I mentioned in John three sixteen, they've got well, what's the eternal life? Well, what's salvation? What's that all about? And I'll quote Jesus in John 17, 3, saying these words. Eternal life means this, knowing you the only true God. And explain to people, actually, this weird concept of eternal life, it's actually about having a relationship with God. Eternal life begins when you get to know him. So let's just put that list of scriptures up. Uh, why don't you pull out your phones for a moment? Take a pick of them. There's these are ones I use time and time again. You may have your own list, but why don't you grab a pick? and that way you've kind of got those. And they can be very, very useful Uh, Like I said, um, I must have used those on just, I don't know, one or several or all of them on dozens and dozens and dozens of occasions. I remember there was a a lady who was a carer for Benjamin here one day and she hung around for quite a while. Uh, I shared, I think, every scripture from that cluster bar, one of them, with her over the course of uh, quite a long conversation. Using God's word is powerful. Moving to the next passage, Acts 22, it says this fellow Israelites. Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purposes and foreknowledge, and, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. By nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. You'll notice here that Peter focuses on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We should too focus on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Any live public gospel presentation you'll ever hear me make, I always do that. That's part, it's the heart of the gospel message. And we see the principle there, certainly modeled by Peter. Acts 238 says this. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. See, having shared those truths about Jesus, he now is calling people to respond. And uh, he uses this word repentance. Um, let me explain repentance to you. It's probably easiest to explain by simply saying. Calling someone to repent is really, it's, it's a change of mind, a change of direction. You're calling the person who might be doing their thing, doing their boss's thing, doing something else's thing, doing society's thing, whatever, you're calling them to turn around and do Jesus' thing. Live how Jesus wants. Choose to put, put away things in, in your life that are not honoring to God and rather live how he wants you to live. Number four, call people to repent from sin. Call people to repent from sin. Acts 2.38 says Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Number five, call people to accept forgiveness. Call people to accept forgiveness. We think of that beautiful verse in 1 John 1.9. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness. So yes, we're calling people to repentance, but we're also offering the forgiveness found in Jesus. Acts 2, 38 and 39 says, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord God will call. Number six, call people to receive the Holy Spirit. You notice how Peter just puts that right in the gospel message. Receive the spirit of the living God. Um, You see, it's it's one thing to have the truths, even knowing the truths like Charles Spurgeon did, um, but it's another thing to have them change the heart. You think of John 3.3, where Jesus sat with Nicodemus, the same person he shared John 3.16 with, and he said, I'll tell you the truth, you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. You've got to have that transforming work that only the spirit can bring. Sometimes I like to illustrate it with this um, butterfly analogy, the life cycle of a butterfly. Uh, When you're at school, I'm sure you drew one of these. My kids all did too. (laughs) And so the butterfly lays a little egg, as you can see there, and uh, that hatches out and becomes a caterpillar. In time, after it munches lots of green leaves and whatever else it can find, the caterpillar grows fat and then regurgitates a bunch of green leaves and forms a chrysalis he's in that chrysalis for a time, ultimately he hatches out and becomes a butterfly. A metamorphosis has taken place. And When someone becomes a Christian, they may not physically change, they might look a little brighter perhaps, but what has happened in the heart is a metamorphosis. There has been a change. They are born again within and you can know the Christian truths but never be born again. Uh, No matter how knowledgeable you Like I said, Spurgeon could not have been more knowledgeable. Dad was a minister. Granddad was a minister. He knew the scriptures inside out, but until he was 15 years of age, when he walked into a little Methodist church, mainly to get out of the snow, suddenly then those truths went from his mind and affected his heart. And from that point, he was born again. Acts 2.40 says this, With many other words he warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Isn't this interesting? Included in Peter's message was he called people to be baptized. He called people to be baptized there and then. In fact, the pattern in Scripture, uh, you'll notice, is mostly people, when they accepted the gospel message, they were baptized generally pretty much right away, Um, which is interesting. uh, Baptist churches and Pentecostal churches and churches of Christ and so many churches that practice baptism by immersion, believers' baptism, have moved away from it being a a rapid thing, you know? Um, And I think personally, I think we need to move back to that. Uh, I, I would like us to follow the Bible as best as we can, of course, we saw a bunch of people baptized here at the church just recently. Wasn't well, that a fantastic occasion on a Friday night? So Tom Cleary was baptized, Amelwyn, Chris's son was baptized, Caleb Welsh was baptized, Talon, who's um, busily doing PowerPoint this morning, he was baptized, Carter Purvis was baptized, and Buffy Purvis was baptized. Wonderful time! All of them sharing a powerful testimony of how they've come to faith. Anyway. Back to Peter. Let's just summarise those seven principles he used in presenting the gospel. Number one, identify with the people. Number two, use God's word. Number three, focus on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Four, call people to repent from sin. Five, call people to accept forgiveness. Six, call people to receive the Holy Spirit. And seven, call people to be baptised. I'm going to make three big points about Peter. Most of my time is spent on his preaching. So part A... The ABCs of preaching. Part A, according to Peter, preaching. Preaching was a key that Peter used. I've heard some people say that uh, preaching doesn't really work anymore when it comes to the gospel. Uh, Seriously, I've read that in the odd book. It's just not true. It's still, I think, overall um, possibly the most effective method. But, of course, these principles don't just apply to preaching. Let's be honest. You could be talking with someone one-on-one like that young lady that I mentioned, and I shared a lot of that stuff just with her in a one-on-one setting. See, the principles still work with it's One-on-one, whether it's a small group, whether it's a family gathering, you name it. It can work in a crowd or with an individual. Now, the church, it, what, like those 3,000 who came to faith in Christ, because a lot of people think crowd evangelism doesn't work. They just all fall away. But we'll see here that actually, no, the church just kept on multiplying. Look here by Acts chapter 4. But many who heard the message believed... And the number of men, just the men, grew to 5,000. There's no longer 3,000. There's now 5,000. And it's just guys, which means there's probably about 10,000 adult believers. And then you've got a bunch of kids. So the church by this time in Jerusalem was probably a good 13,000, perhaps 14,000 strong. A megachurch. In fact, our first example of a church in the Scriptures was a megachurch. Now, I know the Apostle Paul planted churches all around the Mediterranean. Many of them were small but they were also large. There was a whole variety of sizes. (sighs) I think of Peter as uh, the first model of a great pastor evangelist. He was functioning as a senior minister of the Church of Jerusalem with a great team of other apostles. But really, we see here very much he was also an evangelist, wasn't he? And, um, you know, it reminds me of the man I was talking about early, Charles Spurgeon. So after Charles had come to faith in Christ, he, he grew very rapidly. Doesn't he look? He looks spiritual, just in the picture, doesn't he? You know, you, you don't grow a beard like that and not be spiritual. <laughs> um, but Charles, Charles Spurgeon, once he'd come to faith, he grew very rapidly. And it wasn't long before he was a pastor, initially in a little country church, which saw tremendous growth. And then he got a call to a church. In London and it was New Park Street Chapel, a Baptist church. Now they'd been a fantastic church historically, big auditorium of about 1,200 seats I think it was and uh, so it was a big church anyway but its glory days had gone. It was now not a very big congregation, it had been packed, it had had some very famous pastors. Their hope, the deacon's hope was perhaps this young man, he's only 19, Charles Spurgeon might be able to turn it around. And so he came. They took a long time making up their mind if they were going to accept him as the pastor. He preached there for four months and eventually they made up their mind they would accept him as the pastor. Now, young Charles was a a gifted evangelist, not just a a preacher to Christians, but very much a sharer of the gospel. And that church grew dramatically. Saw phenomenal numbers of people coming to salvation and eventually they realised, we're going to have to move property. And so... They left their building, had a hired facility for several years while land was purchased and an immense building was was created. Let's have a quick look at the picture again. That's the metropolitan tabernacle. It's still there today in London. And the thing, when it was originally built, sat 6,000 people. And you just try and get your head around 6,000. The Crossway Auditorium, which I think many of you are familiar with, it's a little less than 1,000 seats, about 930 uh, they're running, of course, four services a Sunday. Um, or that gives you... So it's six times that size. Or you think if you've been to Hillsong in Sydney, for instance, the auditorium up there, uh, that's, it's, when it's all fully opened up, that seats 3,000. It's twice the size of the Hillsong Auditorium. So you're talking a massive auditorium. This place was huge. Well, they filled it twice a Sunday. Sunday morning, Sunday night, the place was packed... And if they had uh, special invitations or anything like that, there was standing room for a further 500 people. Amazing growth. Thousands of people came to faith in Christ. It had a membership of 14,000 people, uh, similar to the size of that early church in Jerusalem. And the evangelistic ministries and ministries in general in the church just ran from morning till midnight. Seriously, the church was open till early in the morning till midnight every day of the week past Sunday. Sunday, they just had the services and prayer meetings. Um, The people of the church, under Spurgeon's leadership, many of them were so effective at sharing the gospel. It just went out into the community. People dragged those into the church. And God exploded the, the growth in that place. A phenomenal, phenomenal church. And I compare it to that early church. Acts 3, 1 through 10. We're going to look at another thing that Peter did. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When Peter saw, uh, when Peter, uh, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, and as did John. And Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Peter said, silver gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk! Taking him by the hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. He went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So here we see this extraordinary miracle. This guy is instantaneously healed and he was well known. People walking past uh, him for, for years, those who went to the temple. A miracle took place. And if you read on down the passage, you'll see then Peter takes the opportunity to tell everyone this is through the power of Jesus. He preaches the gospel there and then, and more people come to faith in Christ. Can I suggest this? The second thing I see in Peter's approach was not just preaching, but power. Part B, the ABCs of preaching. B, power. Power. Now, I know as I share that, some of you might be thinking, yeah, but Lee, let's be honest. Lame people don't get prayed for and suddenly able to walk today. About uh, three years ago, I baptised a guy called John. And in John's testimony, he had had a serious accident as part of his story. And he was told by the doctors he would never walk. Sorry, John, there's nothing we can do for you. You will never walk again. He was prayed for. And yes, you've guessed it. By the grace of God, he was able to walk and it's part of his baptism testimony he shared that story because he wasn't a believer at that point. He was open, but that miracle helped him come to the, f- the faith that Jesus really is the Son of God. I remember years ago in Sydney, um, we are running a big Carol's Outreach and uh, as a platform before I got up to share the gospel, I got a lady up to talk about the experience that she had had. She um, was not from a Christian background and she'd gone to the doctors for a checkup And they said to her, look, I'm so sorry, but um, you have five, uh, six, I think it was, six rapidly growing tumours. They're growing so rapidly, we don't really think treatment's going to make any difference for you. I'm very sorry. You've probably only got a few months left to live. Well, she was desperate. She's not a believer. And she thought, I'm so desperate, I'll I'll go to church. So she did. (laughs) She heard the gospel of Jesus, accepted Jesus as Lord and Saviour, and she was prayed for. She felt something happened as she was prayed for. She went back to the doctors. One of the brain tumors had disappeared entirely. All the others were greatly reduced. She went back again. Completely clear. Completely clear. Now I know God doesn't always choose to heal. Another friend of mine, she died with brain cancer. But this particular lady dramatically healed. And of course, it all happened when she's well in the process of becoming a Christian. Well, I got her to share her story. Before then, I use that like a platform to then share the gospel with a crowd of people at a carols event. The power of God can be strategic in the journey of helping people to believe. One more big point, Acts four twenty nine. Um, this is a prayer meeting, a gathering, and uh, Peter and John have just received a whipping from uh, the religious leaders—physical whipping because they wanted to shut them up from talking about the resurrection of Jesus, now they've come together for prayer. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they had prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. It's a pretty dramatic prayer meeting, but you hear what they were praying about. God, give us the power to work your miracles. God, give us the boldness to preach the gospel. I almost guarantee in any gathering where I share a message like this, there will be people thinking, "Well, I'm terrified of the idea of sharing the gospel of Jesus with anyone who's a non-believer. Pray for boldness. Pray for boldness. Ask God to help you. The early church did too. God, give us boldness that we might... See the opportunities where we can share the gospel of Jesus Christ. You will learn last week, as we pray to the Lord of the harvest, we'll start to feel the heartbeat of God. And it causes us to to care for people, to feel compassion. This week, the prayer meeting is more of a big corporate event with this large gathering of praying for boldness to share the word of God and that the Lord might release his power. One of the, um, the great uh, uh, pastor evangelists of our time is Nicky Gumbel. And of course, the Alpha Course uh, is a very famous course that um, he's popularized and developed. And uh, they just keep on improving it and making it more and more effective. Um, I've been to Nicky's church and uh, know a bit about it. And uh, let's have a look at um, Holy Trinity Brompton here. Uh, pick of it. We've got that there, lads. Here, here they are. Uh, and yes, as you can see, yes, they use, they use lighting as well. <laughs> um, but in going along to their church, one of the things that you discover as well um, is that there's all sorts of evangelistic ministry that church is doing, just tons of evangelistic stuff. Alpha is one of many things that they do. They've had a long history. God has blessed and grown that church. Um, but Nikki would say this. About prayer, he believes the Christian's highest value should be prayer. As much as he's a great evangelist, he knows prayer is vital to be effective. So, my point C is this: prayer. ABCs of being effective at sharing the gospel. We learn from Peter. Yes, we need to preach, but we need to pray. But we need to also pray. Point C: We need to pray. Prayer is going to be key. So, the ABCs of preaching. Let's look at all three of them. Um, Preaching, power, and prayer. Preaching, power, and prayer. And by the way, this is a pattern we see in the New Testament. You read through the book of Acts, you'll see this pattern going on time and time. There's preaching, there's a power moment where someone's healed, and there's prayer, and people get saved. Preaching, power, prayer, and then people get saved. You see that pattern time and time again. And unfortunately, you also see one other P, persecution. Um, You know, it's uh, one of the realities, of course, of following Jesus. Uh, You'll never hear me me say, man, you become a Christian, everything's going to be bells and whistles, life's all sorted, it's going to be so cool, you'll never have a problem again. No, it's not true. Jesus never promised we're not going to have serious challenges, and we see it in the book of Acts, despite all the excitement that I've just shared, some of those Christian leaders were very persecuted too. You know, Let me pray for you in this journey. Worship team's about to return. Let me pray for you and um, let's ask God, just as they did in the early church, let's ask God to help us with this thing because deep down all of us know that extending the kingdom of God is absolutely at the heart of what it is to be a Christian. But we're also uncomfortable with it, even a bit scared about the idea of ever sharing the gospel. But let's ask God's help. Let's pray into it, just as the early church did. Shall we pray together? Father, here today, we want to ask for your help. Many of us here probably feeling uncomfortable, not about the theology of the gospel, but the thought that I might actually have to one day share the gospel. And not just one day, but you know, <laughs> in this next few weeks. I just want to pray, Father, that just as the the people of Spurgeon's church or just as the the men and women of the early church or the people of Nicky Gumbel's church, Father, help us in the journey to ask you for boldness, just as the early church did. We we know we need your help. And so, Father, we ask, would you give us your help? And Father, we, we ask not only boldness for sharing the gospel, but help us to be a people who pray in, to reaching the lost. Help us to be a people who would believe for a power moment where you might graciously heal a sick person as we pray for them in the journey of that person coming to faith. And so, Lord, be with us. Help us in this journey. Help us to be a people who truly want to build your kingdom. Not just give it lip service, but start to be active in sharing our faith, planting the seed of your word into people's hearts and watching it grow.